Are you curious about how you might have a more fulfilling work life? Well, you're not alone. In fact, the numbers show us that many of us want more fulfilling work lives. I'm Susan Mikriadon, your host. And as a finance director, ops director and leadership coach, who has lived and worked in many countries. I've met people who love what they do and people who don't. People who bring their full selves to work and people who won't. But one thing that I've learned that is common to us all is that we are all unique and have unique experiences and perspectives. So join me and my guests as we place a lens on the people side of work life and explore ways to let your uniqueness shine through by sharing insights, stories, strategies and techniques to inspire your work life. Today I am delighted to be joined by Pauline McNulty from Playfield. Pauline, you're most welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers. Thank you, Susan. It's great to be here. <laughs> great. So the first time we spoke, something you said that I think would probably resonate with a lot of people was at some point you said to yourself, life is work and you just couldn't see beyond it. Mm. Yeah, that, I guess, brings to mind a kind of a point where from my own personal experience, I focused very much on work and it became you know a real focal point of my life and I got lots from it and a lot of satisfaction progressed well but then I kind of noticed that yes it was taking up most of my time and the decisions I had made the responsibility lies with me had led me to a point where I had prioritized progression above everything else and I always think about like what life is long and short at the same time, depending on your perspective. And I was looking ahead saying, actually, is this the right thing that I should be doing rather than what I could do? And um, what should I be doing in my next chapter? So that's kind of the point I reached. And, and what did you do, Pauline? What was your career? What did you maybe want to be as a kid? And <laughs> is that what you did? Um, if I start with what I wanted to be as a as a kid, I think I wanted to be everything. So I like, I, I remember talking to my mum about this, particularly since we started the play field, is that I was like, Mum, what was I like as a child? And like help me remember things that you noticed that I might have noticed. And she was like, You just loved a project. Any school project, it didn't really matter about the subject. I was just naturally curious. And so I never had one hobby, one thing where I was like, I'm headed this way. I would be, okay, I'm, I'm trying this, stamp collecting. Then it was like science. And then it was created. Then at this moment, I'm doing crafts or then I'm outdoors. I naturally just was drawn to wanted to try everything. So when it came to thinking about careers, I noticed the shift. I had this distinct memory of being in the careers library well a room at school you know where they yes. had index cards for the people who can remember index cards and being about 13 I was always really interested in work for quite a young age and going through the index card looking at careers going oh I could do that and I noticed that actually when I looked think about it in hindsight 
a lot of my decisions of which ones I should go for were based around money being a factor because you at that age you start to notice who what has money what money gets you and how people talk about money so there was an element of being academic knowing that I kind of had capability in that regard but then saying well, okay what path should I pursue to maximize my career potential obviously I wasn't using those words at 13 but that's kind of what I was thinking about so I remember speaking to my dad even at that age and going home and going dad maybe I should be a barrister uh, I hadn't read about it and then he's like Poor dear, I don't think that's for you but and then you know I always spoke to him about his business so I was always interested in business how companies work all of those sorts of things so it took me a while to work out what I actually want to do and I was I'm probably still working you know I only think I'm kind of working it out now so that's kind of the backstory of I guess childhood into teenage years and that sentiment followed insofar as when I chose my degree I chose computer science because I saw that as a good career move at that time that was not as common and people weren't talking about that world but because my dad was a programmer as part of what he did I had my eyes open to it and I saw it as a good career move what I found when I did programming was that I liked the problem solving aspect of it but it wasn't enough about the people too much time in front of the computer so I thought I know what I'm going to be I'm going to be an accountant oh yeah because <laughs> they're so about the people well, my motivation there was actually, <laughs> I'm not cool enough. I've got to look at the accountant now. My motivation was like, well, if I understand the numbers, I understand how business works. And I saw, again, I can understand the technology, understand the numbers. If ultimately I wanted to run my own business or be a leader in a business, this is all good groundwork. So I joined KPMG as an accountant, ticked a box for financial services and got allocated to insurance. So... Um, my corporate career was in insurance, worked my way up to audit manager level, reached a point where at that point I was like, well, actually the hours weren't sort of palatable for me personally. And I always wanted to give industry a try. So I moved to the natural, easy move across to internal audit as to gain some breathing space to begin with, just to work out what I want to do next. And what I noticed was, that, oh, well, actually, you got to learn about the insides of a company on a different level and great project-based work, which I liked. And I saw it again as a, a pathway to get more senior because I thought, actually, I can do this. I learn about the company and the path to get to head of internal audit means that you're then interfacing with the audit committee, the, the kind of the board. And actually I was like, okay, that's the level at which I hope to operate. So pursued that, worked in-house at a company called Aspen um, and then joined Liberty where I spent the rest of my career there. I joined as the head of internal audit. And then from there, did that for about three and a half years. But during the, that time we went through internal integration, grew, like, grew in size. And then the opportunity arose um, and I got appointed as the chief risk officer. And so I did that for three and a half years. And it was at that point where about 18 months or so into that role where I was like it's such a meaningful role and it's such an important role but there wasn't something working for me the initial part of it because it was new it was building something I really loved it but then I noticed it was a bit like that it's not you it's me it wasn't the role is bad you know or anything like that it, there was something not quite gelling and I had to get really curious about what was motivating me what did motivate me try and remember why 
I'd chosen certain things and what I wanted to look my career to look like going forward this is kind of where I came across some certain key principles that like the idea that you can design your life uh, was a was a great book that I read and the idea of applying design thinking principles to what your life looks like and your work looks like became really important to me mm. I'll pause there to see whether you have any more questions <laughs> I, I could talk <laughs> no, that's, it, it, it's fascinating Pauline that you know you had your eye on the prize yeah. in inverted commas you know you said progression from the beginning and you worked your way up and you did it and then like a lot of people I think you get up there settle into the road perhaps that people spend their career working towards and yeah. then go is this it mm. is this what there is is this where I'm going to spend the next 20 <laughs> or 30 years as well mm. and designing your life or your career means you have other opportunities there's no such thing as that's the job for life anymore is yeah. there absolutely and I guess I never saw myself as a career auditor I never saw myself as a career risk person I always saw it as a I would do the best um I could do at the time I didn't quite know what it's going to take me but I always knew that it was a pathway to somewhere I guess to that point of following progression I think it's quite timely to the, the other thing that really helped inform learning about myself firstly was that, that I kind of read this great research in, in Harvard Business Review around research model that we go to work for three reasons and this is sort of a real penny drop for me <laughs> moment is that research has shown that we've got three primary intrinsic motivators when you put aside all those hygiene factors of pay presuming you're working in a nice place etc uh, the first one is potential, and that is the story that I've just told. That's me in my 20s into my early 30s saying, okay, where can I get to? How do I get there? And companies are set up to have that conversation. They are designed in a way that you expect to arrive at a company and they will say, where would you like to go? What's your progression path? And that's great because it kind of taps into that powerful motivator. But that was the motivator I personally chose to focus on. And then the company was set up to respond. So that's the first one, kind of either potential. The second intrinsic motivator is purpose. And we've seen that this whole trend of purpose moving out the domain of charities and vocations like being a doctor into the corporate world. And that can be purpose on the, what I call big purpose in terms of social impact, um, in terms of what the company sets up so kind of how to make the world better effectively or more and more about small purpose the, the idea of day to day how do you get your sense of meaning so that could be I help my team develop I help a customer get the outcome they're looking for and what studies have shown is that purpose-led organizations are proven to outperform in the long term and that's because an organization is just a collection of individuals gathered around a common purpose. And what they're doing is tapping into that intrinsic human motivator at scale, and that's driving the results and impact that they want to achieve. So my personal story around purpose was that, yes, I had a meaningful role, 
but the attachment and the meaning for me and what meaning meant for me wasn't quite aligned so that was kind of an interesting thing so I did a lot of exploration around purpose what is was that for me what does purpose look and feel like and how can I get that sense of meaning and then the third primary intrinsic motivator is play and I was like what they've written play in a business article and I think it was a you know right house one of those things where you want a yellow car and all you see is yellow cars so like <laughs> it became one of these words where I was oh I kept on seeing play but that was one of the first moments that I have saw it in the relationship to work and the way they talked about play is enjoying the act of the work itself and that really hit something within me and it was like oh what do I enjoy? I know there's lots of things I enjoy, but how would I describe that to someone else? How much of my job do I enjoy? And how much is it like other factors in my life, meaning that I'm not enjoying my work? So I really kind of got curious about what, um, what I enjoyed, what I didn't enjoy and started to notice that. And that was really, really powerful for me. And to bring that to life a bit more is that Enjoying the act of the work itself could be, you can think of a creative, you can think of someone who's deep in theatre, but you can also think about a programmer or a, an accountant who's lost in the moment in that sense of flow, solving problems, and that to them is play. And actually, it's proven to be the most powerful motivator because it's the one that you do every day. Sense of meaning and potential isn't something you tend to get every day, depending on your job, but it's something that sustains us and it's self-sustaining so that is really powerful so going back to the designing your life principles by understanding what was play for me I was able to make more informed choices about what I should do next mm. there's so much in in that <laughs> And I mean, we've talked about potential, so we might just leave the potential piece, but the purpose piece, I suppose the question that often comes to mind for me with purpose is, why do you get out of bed every day? Mm. And I think to go to work, you know, what what is it that drives you other than the pay, perhaps? And I read that I think it was Mayo Clinic did a study with doctors who found that actually, as long as they felt that their work was meaningful, so 20% of the time, that was enough. And actually nothing over that made any difference. Right. So the missing ingredient then really feels like what you were talking about, the play, because probably a lot of those doctors are playing as such. They grew up playing doctors and nurses. Yeah. No, absolutely. I, I think that's a fascinating study. I haven't heard that one. And it does join some dots between a few things. But the, as you say, like the, the impact of the work is separate to the act of the work. So they're seeing and feeling the impact 20% of the time. And that's meat feeding their need for contribution. But in terms of the act of the work, their days are solving problems are you know working out the diagnosis and working out that treatment plan that's going to help people get better but that that solving exercise is for some people is inherently enjoyable like that's a, a challenge that they love to do so you can see that's both sides of, of it and it's kind of important to note that the idea of fulfilling your potential 
sense of purpose and play, that, that motivation mix will shift and evolve over time and it will be different for every person. So this is not saying you need all three in equal proportions, but it's about, again, with all of these things, self-awareness of where am I at? How can I use that self-knowledge to make more informed decisions? And again, it, yeah, it starts with yourself always, doesn't it? Then in a team, Pauline, you know, let's say I'm a team leader in a business and I've discovered my play and I think, right, this is the next best management thing and I'm going to get everyone playing with me. And obviously that's not the right way to go because everybody <laughs> will play differently. But also it can so easily be frowned upon, I think, that word. It comes across as not work like yeah. we talked about. So how how do you reinvent or reimagine or reframe play so people get it? Yeah, no, I think, well, you picked up on a really important point there that one of the myths that we talk about is that play doesn't mean one thing. So often people have a stereotypical view of play and play at work kind of looking like Google Slides. But play can look and feel kind of it can be loud or quiet you can go into a traditional office and there can be plenty of play happening but we just don't apply that word to it and we talk about how play can appear at work can be through the environment so that could be stereotypical playful or it could be just an environment which invites people to enjoy what they do and experiment it can be about experiences such as Lego series play or specific social experiences where there's play going on. It could also be about the behaviours that people exhibit more or less playful. Does your culture allow people to express themselves in a lighthearted way? And then the last piece, as we say, is the act of the work itself. And I think that's the, the one we're most interested in because that's the one where people don't think about that as play. And we just talk about joy at work, but in terms of connecting the dots between the verbs that you do, <laughs> the activities that you do day to day, and those can be more or less like play, are for us a really powerful way of thinking about it. So that's just some context, but to kind of answer your question more specifically, to if you're a team leader who's kind of thinking about play, or oh, this is really interesting to me, I think that what we encourage teams to think about is to first just to explore the word itself and say, what does the word play mean to you? And start with an open question. Bring out those potential um, myths, help dispel them, but through a collaborative process where you kind of learn what the, the group feels about play. And that groundwork, you think, well, why do we need to do that? I think it's because as adults, we've put play and work in opposition. So that's another myth that we dispel. We have to go back to the groundwork and level the playing field, no pun intended, around what the word play can look and feel like in adulthood. And as you say, reimagine, rethink that word. It's seemingly simple, but there's a lot <laughs> to unpack there. So that's the first piece. If play is not in the vocabulary, introduce it in a way where the people themselves get to talk about it rather than kind of jumping straight into let's play. So I think framing it, exploring it first. The second piece would be understand how your people like to play. 
we have a tool that helps people reconnect to their play preferences but even just the question you can just ask how do you what's your play look like and that way you can paint a picture of how that team likes to play and the individuals within it and then using that insight you can then design for that particular team and where they're at what makes sense in terms of engaging in more play whether that be the act of the work itself and how do we allocate work or do we want to have some playful experiences which are what we would call like pure play like improv or or bring in some play experiences in but using the knowledge of how the people like to play first because often people don't do that piece yeah and I was thinking that actually people are probably playing already yeah. like we've been talking about yeah. they just don't call it that yeah so it it is recognizing that that's when I'm in flow or in the zone or whatever you want mm. to call it or I'm at my best when yeah. and um and then also understanding how different people connect because then maybe you're better off working with X over there because actually your play styles complement each other better or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I, I love the, how do you engage it in a different way and bring in different tools or techniques? Because what came to mind was people often tend to go offsite and do mm-hmm. a team building day or something, but actually you don't need to do that. You, you can experiment with different things in your office that actually might just get you up for your de- desk for even 20 minutes to get you fresh again. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, there's two levels that this works at. It's the, as I say, the act of the work. So making your choices based around your kind of preferences. And as I say, they, they might evolve as well. But do I enjoy, enjoy most of my job and how, how can I learn what I enjoy? The second piece is having play as a way of refreshing is not about the work it's around the work but it inspires it infuses that creativity and then you go back to the work itself with a new sense of clarity and you know often people talk about I get my best ideas when I'm on a walk or in the shower or recognizing that that is really important and giving ourselves permission (laughs) that actually that's a valid use of time and yeah I think with all of these things, as you say, experimenting where you are, I think with a lot of the benefits of play are huge in terms of, you know, it's as important as sleep, we believe, and it's a biological need. So, but what, what happens, we get to a certain age, and we put it on the shelf, and we say it's not that important. I can ask you about your quality of sleep, but often people wouldn't be able to reflect on how much play am I getting in my life? How much am I deeply enjoying activities I'm doing? some people do some people don't but I think as a I'm not looking to generalize every person but I'm saying the conversations aren't happening in in the round you can ask me about my work more than my play I'll be able to tell you how work was last week and how my sleep was but yeah yeah and by kind of really understanding that it is super important and it's about as powerful as purpose in terms of a motivator it then is elevating the importance of it and it contributes to our sense of well-being how resilient we are the ability to adapt um, and evolve that natural need to experiment through play with play and that doesn't really enter the 
the conversations around like how do we solve this problem right now in a way that feels like play because we're going to get better results and that is really what we're talking about and I think that yeah no that makes a lot of sense and I think what you said right at the beginning you talked about giving yourself permission that this is a valid use of time and I think that is perhaps that's one of the biggest constraints is our day-to-day lives are so filled (laughs) not with play they're not play filled but they're so filled that people and again I'm speaking generally here what I typically hear from people I talk to is we don't have time to get above the day-to-day to reflect on things like this Mm. and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy then that you're just going to keep going you know if you do what you've always done you'll get what you've always got yeah what brings people to go okay we need to explore this Pauline Mm. Absolutely. I think what comes to mind when you're talking about that is that this is important but not urgent category. So if you speak to leaders, they go, do you want more motivated individuals that you understand? And people go, of course. But taking the time, which is typically done in the offsite pieces, to re-engage, reconnect and understand people. I've been there. I have complete empathy. Is You've got quarterly results. You've got all of these things. And actually, you know, it's super important, but you don't quite get around to it. So I think that's the reality. So we're not saying it's easy in that respect. So it is about, as you say, being intentional, carving out the time. I guess it's about recognising that's happening and say, actually, the way to, to get results is to do the counter thing and say, actually, pause, reflect, invest in the people because they're the people making the decisions and doing the day to day. So if you've got a pause, reflect that to do this sort of work you then will get the results ultimately I think so people will either get to a point where they've got some headroom to do that or there might be a point of this team isn't working well or we need to do something because we're not getting the results and then people look to a solution like this or any other solution which says right okay how do we re-engage connect and understand our people to motivate them and there's a myriad of solutions out there so I think it's either this is how we get results or we've created some space to think about this or actually there's a problem, a people-related problem and so we've got to do something. Mm. I think that's um, that's the drivers in my experience. I'm sure there's others, but that's what comes to mind. Yeah, it is. And I think if you can be proactive about it, then you never get to the problem stage <laughs> or rarely. And, and hopefully in the next 10 to 15, 20 years, that's what we see more in the world yeah. of work, that people are preempting or preparing to engage people through play, through purpose and potential and anything else that might motivate them and not just thinking, just get on with it. Mm. Absolutely. And I, that speaks to that newer organisations, younger organisations are designing themselves in a way that they are human first. And it's not to say that traditional organisations don't have that desire. You know, it's, it's a collection of individuals. No one's saying, oh, uh, typically they're not saying we, we don't care about people. But I think it's just that over time it was set up with a certain metrics and certain structure to serve those metrics that 
actually it's a rewiring that is needed and that has to come through some intentional transformation but yeah so that's where there's definitely a, a shift happening and you've seen it with purpose and I guess where what we're saying is that we think that by taking a laser focus on play and applying that lens across an organization we're really excited about what could be we don't have all the answers but our vision is that by taking this idea understanding what it means for each individual each team and as the collective as a whole and what are the opportunities to increase play in all its various forms that you really unlock hidden potential get more creativity from people people make better decisions and generally you'll be more resilient for whatever challenges are coming down the track and it's also a really nice way to get people to think about how they might enjoy doing their job better by actually Mm -hmm. saying to them look this is your job this is what we need you to do but do it your way yeah absolutely and I think there's always micro things and macro things you can do and I think the micro hacks around yeah I've got this task but I don't really enjoy it how can I incentivize myself to do it quicker versus how do we make sure I get more of the activities that I love so it's not saying this is a a silver bullet that means everyone loves it 100% of the job 100% of the time it's about people using this we'd say it's an activity it's also an experience but it also can be a mindset okay actually I want to take this point this approach that enjoyment of activities and like doing what I can do individually and collectively to enjoy more of what I do we're all going to feel better <laughs> and get better results And then, Pauline, what I was just thinking about is the people that spend all day long, almost every day, in meetings. (laughs) Yes. What, I mean, that is, unless people obviously find that play, (laughs) I certainly never did. Is there a way to reimagine meetings? I would say, yeah, meetings, it's, it's such a, thorny topic I think that you know gathering of people to make progress is natural and I think meetings have now become it's a dirty word if you like I think if if there's clarity of purpose of why people are gathering and that gathering of people in a meeting is designed in a way to get the result that it's intended there's nothing wrong with meetings but often because people are so busy, they don't necessarily have the time to think about what's the purpose that we're going to get, what's the best way to achieve that purpose, which sometimes is not a meeting. So often meetings are used um, as the default tool, but they aren't inherently bad if they're well designed. I said that's that's sort of first piece, clarity of purpose. The second piece is if a meeting or a gathering of people is the right thing to do is about whoever's holding that meeting. How do they bring people together in a way that is engaging, that you're thinking about the activity within the meeting to get the result. So obviously traditional meetings, it's like we have an agenda and then we will talk through the items and then it's about communication and a sense of agreement. But if it's a meeting to align, discover, and get new ideas it can think well actually what's the best way to hold that gathering of people how should we go about tackling the problem in hand or the objective in mind and which also brings to mind have we got the right representation and 
diversity of the problem at hand. And so that that is all about designing the right gathering. And obviously play can be part of that, but it's I think it's about being more intentional about meetings before you get to that point. <laughs> Yeah, it, it is a nice way to look at, well, how, you know, again, it's about the reframing, isn't it? Is there another way we can do this? Is there something other than our traditional approach that might not always work? So, yeah, yeah. I think that's important. Now, Pauline, when I look at your website, one of the things you really promote is that this is evidence-based, Mm. which I think is great also for organizations it's not like you woke up one day and decided everybody needed to be able to play (laughs) so who's the kind of person that maybe prompted a lot of this research or is there somebody leading in the field I would say there's a variety of people coming from different um angles that the motivation model I referred to was out of a book called Prime to Perform and a consultancy called Vega Factor. And they've done some deep research into those. They talk about total motivation. And obviously we're focusing on one particular motivator, which is play. So that's a context setter for us. And then like once we've said, right, okay, this word play, how do we go deeper on it? There's lots of research around play, the link between play and resilience for children, less so for adulthood. There's a really powerful book by Dr. Stuart Brown called Play. And that's kind of was our inspiration for the eight archetypes around play and the ways of play and the verbs that people might do. The quote, the idea of the opposite of play is not work, it's depression. Mm. Brian Sutton Smith, another academic, we find that really super powerful as a, a way of saying actually, if if work, if play is a word, an activity you deeply enjoy why wouldn't you be seeking that more of the time in your life? So uh, that's some research there. I think in terms of more recent, there's academic out of the Netherlands, kind of Arnold Bacher, who is talking about playful work design and doing some studies there. If anyone's interested in the evidence and research, we have a whole bank of evidence and research, rather than me kind of quoting different snippets. I think on the evidence is all there, but in a way, that's meaningful to, to a point and it validates what we know. But I think what really resonated for me at some level is the fact that if you just reflect on your own experience as a human and when you are at your best, yes, you can have the evidence of how to implement it in a workplace or what the studies show. But my belief is that actually people just need to reflect on their own experience and that will give them all the evidence that they need absolutely as you're talking I'm thinking for me laughter and humor is is it's one of my top three values and honestly if I go a day without some laughter somewhere I feel it at the end of a day if I'm feeling a bit like oh I can ask myself did I have a chance to laugh today and if I hadn't that's probably the answer and and I would definitely have brought that into the workplace there is no meeting that I went to that didn't have some (laughs) remark that got people laughing and not from the clown perspective but actually it's also the way I think you know and and I feel as well if you laugh you move about a little bit and it Mm. changes the atmosphere and so that would be very much one of my ways of playing I guess yes 
definitely a natural entertainer but that kind of natural lightheartedness is like you know or I, I I people who can bring that to in terms of their behaviors which influences the culture and how things are done have got a massively important role to play in workplaces because they can shift the energy of a room and not everyone has that ability and not everyone will come to naturally but people who do shift the energy of room and then everyone will then be operating from a different place yeah it's true and you can ease tension as well yeah, yeah. so shift the energy of a room yeah sometimes it doesn't always work of course but, you know. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, I've seen that happen. And there's the laughter. Yes. <laughs> it's so important. And one other thing I wanted to ask you about before we finish up is, I think I read this on your website or somewhere, is well-being initiatives often fail because they are around work, not about work. Because everywhere I go now, everything is about well-being. That really seems to be, and I think this is a very, very important point that's mm. being made that actually doing stuff around work is great, but what about the work? Because that is what everybody needs to get done. Mm. Definitely. And I think well-being, we're not saying it's not important. We're obviously saying it yes and. We're saying, and I think that the focus on well-being is so refreshing and great and thinking about the role of organizations and their contract with people and what they can expect when they turn up to work is, is super helpful and obviously the pandemic has heightened the focus i guess in terms of the support around the work again is a fantastic step forward in terms of organizations providing employee assistant programs access to services like and apps and and or activities that support well-being um, I guess, yeah, but most of your time at work is not engaging in those. Uh, that can help you around it. But if you think about all your time at work, what you're doing, the act of the work itself, will have a massive influence on how you feel. And the activities you're doing, but also the environment in which you're operating, that can be the physical environment, but also, you know, pointing to the behaviours and the culture, Again, if that's not right, employee assistant program is kind of like around that. But if, if your teammates and your um, leaders aren't creating that right environment for, for which you to thrive, those become like less, like they're not going to have as much impact. So I guess what we're pointing to is to, to, to do that as well as think about how do you design good work? The CIPD has got a whole focus on this. And I think it's super important. Like, how do we design good work? And if we think about how organisations, as, as I said earlier, have evolved, they were set up to maximise profit and born out of the Industrial Revolution. It was, they were designed and evolved in that way. I think it's time to say, actually, what are the metrics and what's the outcomes that we're looking at are super important, which will still deliver results, but in a different way. And then how do we design for that? Yeah. Wow, there is so much work to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I also have an amazing faith in the capability of all the wonderful humans that we have is about just giving them the space where they are to, to even if they can get 10% better experience. I have faith that people have got that capability within them. So it's just a case of 
giving them permission, as, as we spoke about, to to do what needs to be done. Yeah, absolutely. I think the tides are turning and will turn. There, There's a long way to go, but it might accelerate once this becomes more normal and Great. people have more permission, which would be amazing. And I love I that. How do you design good work? I think that's such a great question to ask yourself. Hmm. Definitely. And I think organisations, I guess people who aren't looking that way, at some point it will become a strategic imperative because they are losing talent because there's too many options. Already it's happening, but there's too many options where people have started from that premise and, and they won't get the talent they need to be able to, to su- succeed and thrive over the long term. Yeah, and, and that's the story of so many industries, the way they go anyway, when people don't, when, when organisations don't evolve to follow trends, that's it, goodbye. <laughs> Never yeah. heard of again. So yeah. yeah, Pauline, that's been so interesting. It really has. Thank you so much. And how can people connect with you if they'd like to learn more about play and work or work and play? Well, yes, absolutely. Thank you, Susan. It's been an absolute pleasure to be on here. Um, yeah, thank you. So if people would love to connect, you can find me on LinkedIn. So that's Pauline Penalty or my co-founder, Zuki Stewart. And we have our own Playfield LinkedIn, or you can go to playfield.com. Brilliant. And I'll put all of the details in the show notes of the episode as well for people. So thank you so much for your time today. And I look forward to learning more about Playfield over the years to come and seeing you in places. Thank you so much, Susan. (laughs) Take care. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Imagine if every day you enjoy work, express yourself fully and exceed expectations. I believe we're all entitled to have this and that the future of work life will be changed by those who strive for and create more fulfilling work lives for themselves, their colleagues, their teams and wider organisation. Thank you for listening today. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and share it with someone you know who is curious like you.